Hello everyone, my name is Duncan Rayburn and this is my Unorthodoxy podcast. In this strange time of the COVID-19 global pandemic, I'm carrying on with some reflections on the meaning and well, finding meaning in the midst of massive social upheaval. One of the things that has been oddly comforting to me is the fact that while many of us are experiencing this time as something unprecedented, as something disturbingly new, when you look back at history, you find that humanity has dealt with this sort of thing before. Not always well, mind you. Sometimes humanity deals with things very badly, as we can see even today. Because we live in a global village, we have certainly increased the sheer scale of the catastrophe, but you will find parallels and patterns of human responses scattered throughout history. In this episode, I want to look at one of the darker aspects of contagion and social contagion. I've already said that COVID-19 as a viral disease cannot really be separated from our experience of it, and in this episode we'll look at what some of that means. A few weeks ago, before things escalated, a friend of mine told me that while she was at her local pharmacy buying some medication for her seasonal hay fever, she noticed people around her buying hand sanitizers in copious amounts. People were pestering pharmacists and shop assistants too, asking what else could be needed as a safeguard against this coronavirus. My friend then admitted that she embarrassingly quickly joined the mob. Suddenly, her shopping basket was full as she found herself taken up in a kind of frenzy, paying for things she didn't even need. This happened in Pretoria, where I live, just as news broke that the coronavirus was in fact in South Africa. Interestingly, the arrival was over 500 kilometers away at the time, and yes, a lot has changed since then. We know pandemonium like this has taken many forms. Reports around the world in recent weeks have included descriptions of people behaving very badly, uh, misbehaving because of this outbreak. Paranoia has often been more rife than actual understanding. As Lawrence Fishburne's character explains in the 2011 film Contagion, to catch a virus you have to come into physical contact with an infected person or a contaminated surface. But to get scared, you just have to come into contact with a rumor. It seems to me that my friend's experience in the pharmacy is symbolic of many other somewhat predictable behaviors that are clustering around this novel virus. In 1965, French philosopher René Girard proposed the idea subsequently confirmed by neuroscience that human desires are not self-generated, but are generated in and by others. And although our desires are always copied or mimetic, we do not necessarily notice this, and certainly we do not necessarily like to admit it. This seemingly simple observation, which contradicts how people have tended to understand human desire for millennia, is helpful for understanding many facets of human behavior, including behavior in, for example, a pharmacy in the midst of pandemic. It can also help us to understand much more disturbing behaviors, which I will get to. You can observe our natural mimetic desire in many things. Say, for instance, you find yourself staring at a menu trying to figure out what to eat. As you flounder in indecision, your partner orders the roasted aubergine and halloumi salad, and suddenly you realize that's exactly what you want, as if your partner had read your mind. So you tell the waiter, I'll have the same. On the other hand, we might consider what led your partner to their decision. It was also no spontaneous desire, 
but was mediated by the desires of others, including the desires of the chef and the restaurant owner in a culture increasingly partial to vegetarian meals, as well as the person who took the photograph that appears on the menu, whose aim it was to make the meal look desirable. We learn and grow by adopting the desires of others, and such desires continue to influence us even when those others are not in our immediate presence. This phenomenon is more pervasive than most of us will tend to notice. Even after being clued into it, it is easy to forget about it. Many a friend has fallen in love with their friend's romantic interest, not just because she was more beautiful or he more handsome, but because friendship naturally implies a proximity that makes copying desires easy. We are, by nature, followers. We follow others. In supporting their favorite sports team, in their religious inclinations, in their political and ideological affiliations, in their coping strategies, in their tastes and habits, and even in their accumulation of too much hand sanitizer from the local pharmacy. We want what others want, because others wanted it first. What hand sanitizer accumulation shows is that when we get information, new information, say, about COVID-19, we do not merely adopt that information as a neutral object or datum. We adopt the desires behind the facts. We take on not just what people think about the corona contagion, but more than this, what they feel about it and how they aim to tackle it. As neuroscientists like Vittoria Gales have shown, we do not merely look at others' actions and copy them, but attempt to copy their intentions too. The story doesn't end here, of course, as Gerard's career as a philosopher and as ongoing research into mimetic desire shows. Desire is the binding force in our cultural norms and values. It is, in a way, a source of tremendous unity, but it is also the source of rivalry, cruelty, and scapegoating. This is probably the thing that has worried me the most about the present contagion. The more people are unified around a cause, the more likely it will be that people come into conflict. Weeks ago, I mentioned to some friends that they should pay attention. When thought contagion spreads, inevitably so does xenophobia, and so do various forms of unreasonable othering. This has happened in every historical event involving contagion. In times of crisis, especially when the general aura is one of fear and uncertainty, we start to look for scapegoats. And you get a sense of this just in the sheer pervasiveness of, of blaming that is going around. When many hands reach out for what is in short supply or for what is merely perceived to be in short supply, as this so-called mimetic or copied desire spreads and escalates, outstretched hands soon close into clenched fists. You can see this anywhere, as for instance when two young siblings fight over a toy or when two nations toy with war over oil. And when we perceive life and livelihoods to be finite resources which everyone wants, rivalry becomes particularly vicious. The bottom line is conflict would not exist without a fundamental shared desire. But let's return again to that proverbial pharmacy. Because shared desire is clustering and accumulating, it is natural that it also produces rivalry, as I've said. Others are quickly perceived not just as sources of desire, for hand sanitizer in this case, but as potential or actual rivals and obstacles to obtaining hand sanitizer. 
the mere act of purchasing becomes an unconscious competition in which everyone is trying to outdo the others. The results can be alarming. For example, when one person has purchased enough hand sanitizer to last a century, their neighbor ends up with nothing. Somehow the thought that human survival is going to be a team effort is completely eradicated. And yes, I know that using too much hand sanitizer is not a good idea. So, mimetic desire proves to be rather resilient to reason. While we are remarkably sure, generally speaking, that we are rational beings most of the time, the truth is we are startlingly porous to the whims, wills and irrationalities of others. What we take to be our very own wills are, in fact, always bound up in the wills of others. This is possibly why the writer Gustave Le Bon, in a very old book called The Crowd, which was published in 1895, likens mob behavior to a contagion. The way in which or degree to which people buy into an idea is not merely a matter of conscious decision-making at all, but a matter of proximity to others, which in an age of digital media has only been increased and exaggerated. As I'm sure you've noticed, the contagion existed for most of us first as an idea, long before it became a matter of tangible reality. What takes hold in the minds of people, from television series to memes to movies to video games to tweets, is less a matter of things being good or valuable or most collectively beneficial than it is of sheer popularity. When fads and fashions come and go, we are likely to wonder a short while later, or years later perhaps, how it was that we had been so taken with them when they seem now to be so obviously frivolous. Even serious things like, say, COVID-19 can be taken too seriously because of mimetic desire. So mimetic desire, as a scientific fact, is what establishes a profound analogy between social immunity and physical immunity. The social body functions in a similar manner to the physical body, fighting anything that looks like a disease, even if it is not a disease. And so in this way, social immunity can function like an autoimmune disease. Mimetic desire establishes the fact that our meaning-making practices revolve around what we identify with. And let's face it, most of us do not want to identify with sickness. Rather, we want to identify with health. And the trouble with this is that it sets up clear coordinates for scapegoating. If a healthy person, for example, as one among the healthy, perceives someone else to be unhealthy, sickly, etc., chances are good that she or he will instigate some or another attack on the so-called unhealthy person. This may be mild, as in the case, say, of simply avoiding and walking around people that seem to be sick, or it may be more severe, as some of my friends have witnessed. People are being socially ostracized for having COVID-19. And just last week, I read an article about a Kenyan man who was stoned to death for having the coronavirus, although his apparent guilt was established by the mob and not by medicine. It was, in fact, never confirmed whether he did have the virus. The ancients saw a very strong connection, sometimes too strong, between physical disease and sin. We may think this ridiculous now, but I would recommend pausing to reflect for a moment. At an unconscious level, as recent days have shown, this connection is alive and well in the minds of many. Thanks to our collective desire to identify with the healthy, the fear of the other has been 
exaggerated and the other is is no longer just a symbol of sickness but a symbol of sin the other is no longer just different or strange but possibly even repulsive the dirty little secret of any virus is that it always comes from the outside and so while there is some sense in self-isolating for example or social distancing the reality is that these concepts are not always adopted unemotionally or or in a detached way or with good intentions they too are not neutral but are already part and parcel of the social environment and therefore part and parcel of social contagion we have yet to fully realize what the fallout of all of this is going to be as i said though being merely optimistic is not going to cut it certainly having a common cause like fighting against this disease can be a powerful unifying mimetic desire but remember the common cause is the reason for conflict too one of the long term effects of scapegoating in the ancient world was that it became ritualized people noticed that collectively murdering someone was a powerful way of unifying people everyone felt they were part of something part of a war fighting for a good cause against their enemy and so on and so they made their scapegoating into a law you may think this weird it is weird but this is where sacrificial practices in the ancient world came from one such practice was the so-called pharmakos in ancient greece the ancient greeks found their way to deal with the spread of any disease that resulted from living in close proximity the greeks treated their cities as bodies with the walls functioning like skin if any city suffered disaster such as a famine or a plague it needed to be cleansed or purged and the method for doing this was the ritual they called pharmakos you'll notice of course that this is where we get our word pharmacy the space where my friend experienced what it was like to be caught up in social contagion it's the greek poet hipponax which is a quite a cool name who offers the most detailed accounts of this he explains that two people or victims were usually selected one male and one female to represent the city to act as penal substitutionary atonement for the sins and sickness of others simply put they would be sacrificed or simply driven out of the city sent beyond the city's skin they would take on the sins of the people Some accounts have it that the selected victims were honored people, kings, princes or virgins, but more commonly, as we find described by the 12th century Byzantine poet John Tsetses, the victims would be the marginalized, especially the physically deformed and sick. When everyone identified with a particular picture of health, their tendency was to think of the deformed or sick as having been identified with misaligning with nature's purposes. This was the pharmakos a word that means both disease and cure by their deformed appearance scapegoated individuals represented the disease by their exit from the city or by their death they were deemed cures pay attention to how this plays out today in the context of the present pandemic we will see as we have already different kinds of scapegoating different ways of being terribly unloving towards others Some of this will happen at a social level some of it will happen at the level of law so for instance i read just yesterday that a couple who were allegedly supposed to be staying at home are being held for attempted murder in south africa note 
the merely potentially sick are even held in contempt. But you can also see the way that the most vulnerable people in society will, in all likelihood, pay for lockdowns in much more severe ways than the less vulnerable. So as in the days of the Greek pharmacy, it is those on the fringes who are most at risk when social contagion spreads. People will feel justified, of course, like the sailors in the ship who end up throwing Jonah overboard in the book of Jonah, if you want to read that, because he drew the wrong straw several times in a row. People will feel, even unconsciously, that their scapegoats deserve what they get, that, in a way, this is God's will. Be very, very careful, though. The entire trajectory of the Judeo-Christian scriptures is against scapegoating. If you want to read René Girard's I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, that's probably his most accessible summary of his findings in this regard. The practice is described there in many ways, but always the posture is that to prey on the vulnerable is one of the most vile sins possible. Remember that Jesus is murdered by the law, by the Roman Empire, and there was even a medieval tradition that saw this as being the result of him being disease-ridden himself. In other words, medieval scholars noticed that Jesus identified so strongly with those who had been cast out that he must have been an outcast of sorts. We cannot say for sure, but there is a kind of truth evident here. Jesus did not identify with the strong and the healthy, but with the weak. Following the example of Christ, St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, in celebration of of weakness in a way. So I'm going to read that passage. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this surpassingly great power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on all sides, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always consigned to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken, we who have the same spirit of faith also believe and therefore speak, knowing that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All of this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is extending to more and more people may overflow in thanksgiving to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, yet... Our inner self is being renewed day by day. It's such a beautiful passage and there's so much in in this letter to the Corinthians where Paul describes how weakness becomes a source of of strength because it it subverts the expectations of, of a world obsessed with empire. It turns out that the gospel accounts are unequivocal about this Jesus' death is the result of injustice, not the result as in later theological errors of God's demand for justice. Jesus identifies with our weakness in the midst of overwhelming human cruelty so as to stand against that cruelty and to overcome its effects. 
He enters into our death so that we do not have to face death alone or in fear. All of this, I realize, is part of a much larger discussion, but the point is this. Jesus' entire mission, his entire posture, was not one of fleeing the sick and the disease-ridden or maltreating them. He did not shy away from reaching out in love when it was needed. There are, I realize, stupid people who are treating this contagion as a joke. They are not trying to mitigate the spread in any way. But even noting this, I'm not advocating for a culture of blame around this disease. I do not think it fair to blame people, those gathering and meeting and say, praying together or hugging each other. They're behaving in very human ways around a very inhuman thing. While I don't think this is necessarily right, certainly it demonstrates a lack of wisdom and understanding, I would hate to compound the already present tendency in people to generate scapegoats out of their shared desires. In any case, I'm also noticing that people are feeling guilty when they get sick. They feel like they must have done something wrong, not washed their hands enough or something, even when they happen to have been some of the more obsessive people. And I don't think this is healthy. I don't think that a culture of guilt is a good idea. When Jesus walked those dusty Palestinian roads, he didn't go around blaming the sick for their disease or cursing the deformed for their disabilities. He went around loving people and healing them. When on one occasion people around him asked him about how one man's blindness was related to the question of sin, the sin of his parents say, Jesus responded by pointing out that this had nothing to do with sin, but was an opportunity for people to see the work of God, which, in keeping with God's nature, is love. Jesus' response was always one of love. It was not one of carelessness, as, as in the case of those who are responding with total indifference to this pandemic, and it was not one of panic and fear, as in the case of those who are overreacting to it. It was always about meeting people's needs, their immediate need for healing, as well as their ultimate need for God. I was planning to end there initially, on that last point, but I think a very brief postscript. I was planning to end there initially, but I felt that a postscript to all of this is necessary. At some point in the not-too-distant future, it is possible that the tide will turn, that the usual identification with health will change. We've seen in recent years in woke politics how an over-identification with the marginalized or with those who are perceived to be marginalized according to very vague coordinates can also become a means by which scapegoating can happen. In the name of the victim, victims can be created. Human beings, sadly, will generate all kinds of reasons to resent others, and it is not beyond imagining that those who do get sick and lose people to this disease could resent those who do not. Once again, even in this kind of case, Christianity, in its concern for aligning with the ultimate reality, that is God, who is goodness itself, stands strongly against any form of scapegoating violence, whether real or symbolic. Christianity calls people to forgive and to love, not to resent anyone. And that's what I have to say for now. Look after yourselves, everyone. Stay safe. Grace and peace to you.